0: Hello, dear listeners. Welcome back to another insightful episode of Free the Bishops. I'm Carmelite Quotes, your host, and as always, I'm joined by the wonderful Rosary Mom. How are things going today in Scotland, Mom?
1: Hello, Carmelite, and hello, everyone. I'm doing really well, thank you for asking. Excited to learn more today about China's impact on Nicaragua. So let's get right into it, because we have a very special guest today, Dr. Reinberg from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, is here to discuss his latest study concerning how China's increasing influence in Latin America and the Caribbean may contribute to democratic backsliding. Now his work explores the economic, diplomatic, and security engagement strategies employed by China and their impact on the region The study also introduces the theory of anti-democratic diffusion, illustrating how China's engagement influences the decline of democratic values. Indeed, Rosary Mom. You know, Ryan joined us last October
0: when we were hosting Sunday Night Spaces on X. He is the director of the Americas program and the head of the Future of Venezuela initiative at CSIS. And that's an American think tank based in Washington, D.C., which conducts policy studies and strategic analyses of political, economic, and security issues throughout the world. And Dr. Berg also has appeared as an expert witness and provided testimony to the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee concerning religious persecution in Nicaragua.
1: And listeners, I can tell you that Ryan's principal interests are in U.S.-Latin America relations security, geopolitics and authoritarian regimes as well as the region's governance and security challenges. His academic background features degrees from Georgetown University and Oxford University here in the UK. When he joined us last fall we did ask him to bring his Oxford level knowledge to our conversation
0: Yes, and since he's speaking to us from Switzerland today, he probably doesn't even have that academic gown with him in his suitcase. So, Ryan, it's great to be with you again.
2: Thanks for having me back. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, in a new and improved way. Congratulations.
1: Ryan, there are a few key points in our mind for today's conversation. So let's begin with this one. In what ways have Chinese economic, diplomatic, security and political activities contributed to the democratic backsliding in Nicaragua.
2: So the report that you reference is uh, our latest long-form report, which basically looks at all the forms of engagement that China has with with the region. And in particular, it asks the question whether there might be a causal connection between those different types of engagements, economic, security, diplomatic, um, and so on, and some of the extreme democratic backsliding we've seen in the last uh, two decades. What makes Nicaragua so interesting is that it's actually uh, it's not necessarily connected to its engagement with China. China comes in after Nicaragua goes through some democratic backsliding and becomes more and more of a consolidated authoritarian regime. There are two mechanisms that we propose in the report. The first is uh, propagation, and the other is protection. Propagation is when there's actually a causal link between all these forms of engagement and democratic backsliding in a given country. In Nicaragua's case, we actually proposed that it's a perfect example of protection. Much of the Nicaraguan backsliding had to do with Daniel Ortega himself. It happened during a period of time where Nicaragua had formal diplomatic relations with Taiwan, not with the PRC. But as soon as Ortega got to the point of having a consolidated dictatorship or a fully authoritarian regime, he sought protection from the People's Republic of China. He very quickly changed diplomatic relations from Taiwan to to the PRC after his fraudulent election in 2021. And it's been further and further down the rabbit hole since. And so we, we propose that Nicaragua is actually an excellent example of that second mechanism in the report, which is protection. The PRC comes in and provides some of its authoritarian tools, to already consolidated dictatorships or regimes that are teetering on the edge of, of, on the autocratic precipice, and uh, allows them to continue in power, protecting them from any kind of domestic movement toward democracy. And and I think in this podcast, we'll get into some of the ways in which China has helped to shore up Ortega's government.
0: As I hear you describe that, I'm thinking of mafia protection. Is this uh, similar to that, where... China is expecting to get something out of the deal, too?
2: I certainly think that the Chinese believe that this is in their interest. A world that is safe for China to be a major world power is a world where there are fewer democracies. Let's be frank about about that. Uh, China certainly is regime agnostic when it engages. We've seen China engage with democracies, autocratic regimes, authoritarian regimes, full-blown totalitarian regimes. China is regime agnostic Uh, with the countries it engages with. However, China feels more comfortable in a world where more governments look much like their, like its own. They understand them better. Uh, They don't make as many unforced errors and mistakes during COVID-19. I'll just give you one example. When we saw the rise of so-called wolf warrior diplomacy uh, out of China, we saw Chinese diplomats making a lot of mistakes. Really aggressive uh, public diplomacy campaigns that struck uh, democratic publics in the West as incredibly out of tune for a country that had just unleashed a pandemic uh, on the world, largely through its, its secrecy and the inability to let the WHO in and study this virus and so on. Um, and so China, I think it's fair to say, just understands regimes that look more like, like itself much better than they understand democracies, and they feel safer in a region where there are more autocratic or, or authoritarian regimes. The added benefit in the Western Hemisphere, if you have more authoritarian regimes, is the ability to pose strategic threats to the United States. In its own uh, shared neighborhood, uh, that can only be to China's benefit in a long-term strategic competition with the U.S.,
0: We'll go on to another question here because the surveillance of Catholic clergy and faithful in Nicaragua concerns me. And in your report, you talk about surveillance. Just this morning in Axios, we read about the iSoon program. So I'm wondering, do we know specifically what kind of security assistance China is providing to Nicaragua and how are they helping Nicaragua to, for example, conduct mass surveillance of citizens and especially concerning religious persecution?
2: Well, we know that that China excels at internal security. It's one of the reasons why the Chinese Communist Party has been able to maintain a firm grip on a country of a billion and a half people. Um, and that China is assiduously developing the technology to continue monitoring people uh, very closely in order to ensure that, 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 made that grip on power. Uh, I'm not sure we've had any smoking gun instances of, of, of public reporting where China has, has been accused of uh, sharing technology with the Ortega regime that directly leads to, uh, to a firmer grip of the regime on power, but I think that it's, it's safe to say that authoritarians share best practices. And so this means that China is in the same category as Russia, they're in the same category as Iran, they're in the same category as Syria and North Korea, other countries that had diplomatic representation at Ortega's uh, sham inauguration, uh, the current friends of, of the regime, if you will. Uh, all of these countries are sharing uh, technologies and strategies for surveillance uh, on a on a population, as well as domestic laws, ways to change domestic laws that uh, eviscerate civil society, that uh, use cyber uh, in order to chill free speech, um, that create sort of uh, cyber aggressions or fake so-called fake news laws uh, that can keep people from speaking anonymously uh, on the on the internet. We've seen it in the case of Nicaragua. We've seen it in the case of other other governments. And in the case of Nicaragua, we actually have a couple instances where the government borrowed wholesale uh, pieces of legislation that had been passed in Russia, transplanted them into the Nicaraguan context, and passed them through the National Assembly. Um, I don't think it should be surprising to, to to folks if we see the same thing happening as the China-Nicaragua relationship continues to develop.
1: Dr. Berg, in your study you talked about China providing diplomatic cover to Latin America and Caribbean governments. Can you please explain how China is providing economic and diplomatic cover to the ortega mario regime? It's been undergoing democratic backsliding for years, probably even before China emerged as an active partner with the regime. So how do China's efforts provide oxygen to the Ortega and Mirio dictatorship?
2: I think most importantly, you need to look at the free trade agreement that the, the Nicaraguan government has just signed and, and implemented with, uh, with, the, with the People's Republic of China. Previously, when Nicaragua was experiencing democratic backsliding, uh, the U.S. Was, was pushing back at times, at times not, but Nicaragua's trading relationship with the United States was never in jeopardy until a post-2018 scenario when some in the United States and the policymaking community started to talk about CAFTA-DR, the free trade agreement between the U.S. and Central America as a potential tool of economic leverage against the the regime in Managua to bring greater pressure to bear on them. As soon as that conversation started happening, Nicaragua started seeking other final uh, export destinations for its goods and services. And China came in in this, uh, in this way of, of offering protection to the regime by offering that alternative destination. Now, there are still challenges there that need to be understood and, and need to be understood well because they will temper expectations of what can be accomplished in this bilateral relationship. Remember that 60% of Nicaragua's exports still go to the United States or just shy of 60%, 59 point something, it's the least diversified economy in Central America in terms of its export destination, which means it's the most vulnerable to U.S. pressure should the U.S. decide to use forms of economic leverage against the regime. So the existential nature of this challenge for Ortega and Murillo is there. It's very much present. If you think about the other partners that I mentioned in my previous answer, Syria, North Korea, Iran, Russia, none of these are particularly dynamic economies that would offer Ortega a a real pathway, a real export destination to absorb a lot of the things that are otherwise going to the United States. China is really his only option for a lot of the, the goods that Nicaragua has to export. That said, however, despite the fact that they've started this free trade agreement January 1st of this year, we need to be mindful, as I said, of some of the challenges that still endure in being able to reorient all of that trade. The first is just the simple uh, fact that it's difficult to reverse to almost 20 years of economic trade between two countries where almost 60% of your exports are going to one place. Second, I think you need to take into account the distance, the new distance that goods need to travel between Nicaragua and uh, the People's Republic of China, right? From Nicaragua to the United States, you have a very short distance and you have uh, basically tariff-free access for 80 to 90% of Nicaragua's exports, there's a good reason why Nicaragua sent most of its goods to the United States. China, however, is much more difficult because if you look at the goods that Nicaragua is trying to export, a lot of them have a, a very firm uh, label on them in terms of when they, ex- when they expire. They're perishable goods, right? We're talking about coffee, we're talking about fruits and vegetables, we're talking about beef. Uh, we're talking about things that may not be able to survive the three or four week journey from Nicaragua to, to the People's Republic. And so the next phase of this, and I think we're starting to see the start of it, is building the kind of infrastructure that Nicaragua needs to make connectivity with the People's Republic of China more viable and thus to reorient more of its trade in a more viable way uh, towards Beijing and away from the United States. So an example of this is last year when uh, the PRC had its 10-year anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative in Beijing, a number of projects were announced in Nicaragua that had to do with building infrastructure, particularly infrastructure that could bring greater connectivity between Beijing and, and Managua. And no doubt, this is an effort to uh, ensure that that viability of the economic pivot is there. If that infrastructure doesn't get built, if it, if it doesn't get used successfully, it's going to be very difficult for Managua to reorient, again, decades of trade connectivity with, with the United States. But we're seeing uh, that, that China is offering protection most immediately in the, in the form of alternative uh, economic uh, sources of, of viability for the regime. And that's been done mainly through their free trade agreement that's been implemented since the first of January this year.
0: I know when we talked with Tony Garastazu a couple of weeks ago, he talked about the fact that China, with their massive renovation project at uh, Sandino Airport in Managua, that Chinese labor is going to more or less uh, drive the project. It's not going to be unskilled labor necessarily from Nicaragua. And is China, uh, have they announced a project to upfit uh, refit, renovate, improve, enlarge the ports of Nicaragua on the Pacific coast. Have you heard anything about that?
2: So there were announcements of ports, uh, port upgrades, uh, but but everything is quite opaque and quite vague uh, with with BRI as well as with Chinese policy generally. What we've seen with BRI over the last decade has been a lot of promises and not a lot of fulfillment of those of those promises, a lot of unmet expectations. So with BRI, I think we've learned to wait and see. Um, there is certainly a nascent interest in being able to upgrade some of those Pacific ports to make the connectivity there better. Even if there is an upgrade to the airport in Managua, I highly doubt that that is going to be the solution for greater connectivity between uh, between Managua and, and Beijing. You, you really need to have ports that can serve as the points of connectivity. You cannot possibly fly back and forth in an economic way uh, all of the goods that need to to be traded or, or that Ortega would like to pivot away from the U.S. market. And right now, the challenge is you need to have a port that not only functions well, but is somehow more attractive to a shipping company than what exists for most of or, most of uh, Nicaragua's exports, which still go to the United States, so you have you have uh, Caribbean ports that are are able to operate. You have overland routes, and you just have a much shorter distance. So this is a this is a pretty big hill that the Chinese have to climb with some of these infrastructure projects. Uh, to your point, Carmelite, Chinese labor coming in to to build these projects is not uh, somehow different than any other BRI projects we've seen in other parts of the world. That's pretty standard course for China and how it engages with, with its BRI. It often brings uh, Chinese labor, which a lot of times brings friction with local labor forces. And we've seen already reports of the Ortega government ready to take out quite a bit of debt to finance some of these projects, such as uh, airport and import upgrades. So that's another thing to, to keep in mind as well, the amount of money that the regime may well take out in order to finance some of this because what we've learned over the last 10 years is that the BRI is not free and eventually the Piper comes to get paid.
0: Understood. Um, Just a trivia question. What Pacific ports would be upgraded to become more attractive to commercial shipping? Well, the one that's
2: been most talked about is not actually a a Pacific port. The one that's been talked most about is, is Bluefields. And obviously, Kabe has been uh, providing some kind of financing uh, for, for that already. And uh, I'm uncertain which of the Pacific ports would be top on the, on the Chinese list for upgrades through the BRI mechanism. Um, I'm not sure if I've seen anything for, I'm not sure if I've seen any, any uh, documents in which they're specifying in um, interest in a particular Pacific port again. Um, these are early days in in the relationship. The free trade agreement only went into effect uh, about two months ago. So I think it's something to to keep our eye on, um, assuming I didn't miss a a
0: major announcement. I understand. You know, when you were with us in October, you were talking about strategy, US strategy, that there is no consistent overarching strategy for the USA. So uh, let's talk about grand strategy again, which is something that appears in your report. What specific risks does China's engagement pose to the restoration of democracy in Nicaragua? Because it was, what, 40 years ago that Doña Violeta was installed as president, democratically elected as president in Nicaragua. You know, how can the United States pursue a democracy-first grand strategy in response to what's going on and, and the risks that China poses?
2: Sure. Well, the, the, the paper basically says that the, the Chinese risk that is posed to the quality of democracy in the region is a reason to uh, put together and develop a strategy and implement a, a strategy. With respect to Nicaragua, I remain convinced that there is no strategy. Um, and with respect to the broader region, there might be you know some sketch of a strategy, but it's not fully fleshed out. If you're like me and you believe that one of the region's greatest strengths is its democratic institutions, its largely democratic nature, the fact that Nicaragua is is by and large an outlier in the region, not the norm, then you can understand why I think a democracy first foreign policy for Latin America and the Caribbean is important. One thing to note before I go into the details, the nuts and bolts of it is I think a democracy first, first foreign policy works well for the Western hemisphere. It may not work well for other parts of the world. We need to understand the uniqueness of Latin America and the Caribbean, as well as the commitment that the region has made itself to upholding democracy um, in the Inter-American Democratic Charter. So in a way, we're just trying to hold one another to the standards that we've all committed to. A democracy first foreign policy with respect to China and its engagement would basically perform an assessment of China's bilateral relationship with each country in the region and understand where they are on the democracy spectrum. Are they a backsliding democracy? Are they a democracy that's managing to muddle through? Are they a star performer Uh, or are they like Nicaragua where there's really no democracy remaining? And it would basically perform that assessment and then form different buckets of, uh, of strategies within a, a broader array of, of tools. So those buckets would basically be where democracy holds fast and where we're not concerned about uh, the future of democracy, I think the United States needs to offer the most competitive uh, framework for for China, basically offering alternatives when alternatives are available, US-led or partner-led alternatives that are democracy-preserving, as opposed to having corrosive impacts on democracy over time. Those areas where democracy may be in question but yet where uh, the verdict is still not firm for example we point out countries like peru and brazil where countries of those two countries have been backsliding over the last couple of years but you can't say in any way that they're autocracies or authoritarian regimes they're simply hybrid um, or struggling democracies and much of it has to do with their overall relationship with china you may want to employ a strategy of curtailment that is to say seeking areas where you can reduce the amount of, of Chinese influence on, on uh, some of those, uh, some of those democracies. And in areas where um, democracy basically doesn't flourish at all, or it is incredibly uh, weak and uh, uh, prone to potentially uh, lapsing back into autocratic or authoritarian forms of governance, you need to insulate some of those democratic institutions from the corrosive impacts of of Chinese influence. And so what we do is outline what we think are three buckets that are just meant to give policymakers a conceptual framework to understand maybe what it is that we can start doing in the Western Hemisphere vis-a-vis China by thinking about it uniquely in terms of where countries fit on a democracy spectrum and then responding accordingly.
0: I think it's a tall order, but I think it's a really important order to fill.
1: We have one last question for you. You know that Carmelite and I are most concerned with religious persecution in Nicaragua, and our previous guests have talked about the Ortega regime importing the Chinese model of church governance. Do you have any specific comments or warnings concerning China's influence on the disappearing religious freedom in Nicaragua?
2: I think it goes back to what I was saying before about sharing best practices. The Chinese could be incredibly useful partners for Ortega and Murillo in their battle against the church, given their own personal battles against uh, Tibet, against Xinjiang, um, and some of the instruments of of state power that they've used and abused in those areas of of China. Uh, They may well have lessons, and I think we should all shudder when we hear this with fear, um, they may have lessons for, for, for Nicaragua in terms of how they were able to fight domestically um, for, uh, to, to basically eviscerate uh, some of those regions' autonomies to express uh, their, their religious freedom and their religious beliefs. So unfortunately, I don't think it's a very sanguine message, China's growing relationship with, with Nicaragua, but they do have some messages to share beyond just general domestic repression specifically in this category of of religious freedom or the lack thereof uh, in in Nicaragua, I fear very deeply um, for what a deeper Chinese-Nicaragua partnership could look like in terms of religious freedom, given what we've seen in China thus far and given what we continue to see in China and regions like Tibet and Xinjiang with some of the very repressive practices, according to some human rights experts, rising to the level of crimes against humanity, right? And so surely there are some shared tactics there, should the regime seek them, that they can employ um, and learn from from the PRC. And I think that should all give us quite a bit of
0: fright. Well, a big thank you, Ryan, for sharing your insights today on these crucial topics. And listeners, we encourage you to explore... Dr. Berg's study for a deeper understanding. You can find it on CSIS.org. That's CSIS.org. And the name of the study is Exporting Autocracy, right?
2: Yes. Exporting Autocracy, China's Role in Democratic Backsliding in Latin America and the Caribbean.
0: Well, before
1: we wrap up, Rosary Mum, would you lead us in prayer for Nicaragua? Absolutely, Carmelite. Let's join in prayer um, for the Church of Nicaragua and for the conversion of hearts let's unite in prayer for the well-being of our brothers and sisters in the face of persecution in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen hail mary full of grace the lord is with thee blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb jesus holy mary mother of god Pray for us sinners now, and at the hour of our death, Amen, Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in the day of battle. Be our safeguard against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him we humbly pray, unto thou, O Prince of the heavenly host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who wander the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. Thank
0: you. Thank you, Rosary Mom, and thank you listeners for joining us today for this episode. And don't forget to share this episode with your friends, your followers on social media, your pastors, your parishes, and subscribe to Free the Bishops for more engaging discussions. You'll get notifications as to our new episodes because we publish our episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and they're available on Spotify or wherever you listen. And of course, you can dive deeper on our website, which is freethebishops.org. That's freethebishops.org.
1: And once again, we thank Dr. Ryan Berg for joining us today. Ryan, it's always good to have you with us.
2: Thanks again for the invitation. Really appreciate it.
1: So until next time, please keep praying and advocating for freedom and an end to religious persecution in Nicaragua thank you for listening. God bless everyone. God bless.